Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, hello. Welcome to the show. We're going to talk today about motels and RVs. Kind of a different topic for us, I think, anyway. So until pretty recently, the motel industry was not flourishing. There were a lot of reasons for that, ranging from the rise of Airbnb and VRBO and stuff like that. And also, I think, you know, not a particularly flattering image in the media a lot of times. So from 1964, which is sort of like peak motel, there were 61,000 motels in the U.S. Uh, and uh, just a few years ago, a similar measurement was taken. It was in 2012. There were 16,000. So from 61 to 16,000. Uh, that's a pretty substantial shuttering uh, of motels. But suddenly during COVID, they experienced a, a renaissance. Uh, and this was for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of the most obvious ones was people no longer wanted to walk down a long corridor and get onto an elevator and go upstairs and walk down another corridor. <laughs> you know, hotels weren't so attractive anymore. In a motel, you usually are outside until you step into your room. So that's kind of appealing, right? Uh, also, a lot of hotels, particularly the luxury hotels, um, you know, they had to shut down things like their spas and stuff like that. Things that might have made them kind of attractive, they had to uh, to, to set aside. Also, uh, there was an economic contraction going. People didn't necessarily respond as well to the $339 per day room rate as they had in the past. So, yes, um, occupancy rates are up. Uh, particularly in this sort of the so-called economy economy occupancy field, uh, way up according to recent studies, uh, motels are doing very very well. So we thought we would talk about them today, um, and we would talk about them. I think particularly through a particular lens, uh, we're going to talk very specifically about what it's like to grow up. Uh, as a so-called motel kid, uh, if your parents own and run motels. And to do that uh, today, we have, let me just uh, quickly say that the RVs will come up in the second and third segments. In fact, at the end of the show, we're going to talk to uh, to Arunin uh, and Eliza Butler Aralampalam, uh, who have four, I happen to know them, and they have four very young children. And this summer, they got an RV and drove cross-country with those four very, I had to take Valium just to hear about that trip. Uh, I, I want to know what it was like to be on it. But anyway, we're going to begin with Foram uh, Mehta, an Indian-American journalist, editor, and content developer. Her personal essays, op-eds, and articles have appeared in HuffPost, The New York Times, and The Bold Italic, among other places. And uh, it was in HuffPost that we discovered her piece, I'm Indian, and yes, my family runs motels. Here's what it was like to be raised in them. Fascinating piece. Uh, exciting uh, to talk to uh, Foram Mehta. Welcome to our show. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So um, I, have to, I have to admit that it was the 1991 movie, Mississippi Masala, 
that clued me into the whole notion of motels being owned by South Asian and I think specifically in Indian families. Uh, I, I just wasn't really even aware of that phenomenon. And I think maybe especially uh, in the South and Southwest, uh, hence the title Mississippi Masala. So um, it, does anybody understand how that happened? I mean, we know that it happened, that uh, you cite some pretty interesting statistics in, in your piece. Do we know why that trend developed? Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about what I learned when I was kind of digging into um, how, you know, like Indian people came to own a lot of hotels. And specifically, um, it's it's a group of Indians, primarily it's a group of Indians um, that are from the state of Gujarat, which where is where my family is from. Um, and when I was doing the research, I found that it kind of, it goes back to the 40s. Uh, the, the genesis of it isn't really a great story. Um, when the Japanese were, were being put in internment camps around and during World War II, they had to abandon a lot of their businesses. And from what I found out, uh, the first motel owner, um, came, Indian motel owner came to be because a, a motel that was owned by a Japanese American had to be abandoned because this person was sent to an internment camp. Um, and subsequently, an Indian American took over. So that's kind of how that started. It's not, you know, it's really sad that that's, that's mm -hmm. the genesis of our story. Um, but in terms of the trend, I can tell you, you know, from my experience, it's just something that um, it's, it's really about achieving like this, the all-American dream. Motels are small businesses that, especially in the South, you know, not a, not a lot of people want to um, like live in a place that only has 600 people or 6,000 people and doesn't have a lot of access to um, all the modern luxuries that we enjoy in cities. Um, but this was an opportunity for people um, like my parents who, you know, saw, saw an opportunity to get on their own feet and to um, make money and raise their kids in America and, and really just uh, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. So often what happens is the, the Gujarati community is very strong. It's very interconnected. And what happens what from you know my perspective a lot is uh, you get into the business, you uh, then connect somebody else into the business and it's just so on and so forth. And so I think that's kind of how it started. Um, you know, I, I, I definitely wouldn't want to speak for everybody, but I can tell you that that's definitely what, what I have seen over um, my last uh, 25 years as a motel kid. It also seems like the kind of business that a family can kind of, a family with a really strong work ethic can tackle together, right? You wouldn't want to take over a 200-room hotel as a family because you're just going to hire a lot of people to do a, a, a lot of work. But a motel seems scalable in the sense that, yeah, maybe you're going to uh, be paying some chambermaids and stuff like that. But the family, at least initially, I would assume, can supply an awful lot of the, the sweat equity. Absolutely. That's, you know, that's something that I saw firsthand growing up. Um, my parents did everything. They, they were, um, you know, now I write about this in my essay, like there was no task that was too small. And um, we, like my sister and I got involved very early on. It was like, hey, like on Saturdays, you know, it was our job to get in and um, start helping clean the rooms. And my job early on in one of the motels when I was like old enough um, to, to really help was to uh, take out the trash. And it was not a fun job. And I, I, I would like to mention that I didn't get paid an allowance to do that. You know, that's something that I learned um, firsthand when I was watching these American shows that um, often American children get paid an allowance to do chores. And I was like, cleaning other people's trash. Uh, and my parents were like, this is what you do. And 
I really appreciate that now, obviously, as <laughs> I didn't get it as a kid. I just wanted to watch cartoons like my friends were doing. But uh, we were helping. It was a family business, and it was, I think, very critical to allow my parents to do all the other stuff they had to do, which was cook and clean and take us to school and everything like that, you know? And um, it, it was really, really just a family effort. And I know that this this is what I was used to. Like, when I saw other families and talked to other families, like, this is not, the, my, my situation was definitely not an anomaly. Um, and when I wrote this essay, actually, I had so many people reach out to me and I was very, it was very unexpected. They told me the same thing. They said, wow, like, I did this. I, you know, this is the chore that I did. This is the chore that I did. And I really loved hearing that, um, th those stories from people because I was like, oh, wow. Like I, I thought people did this, but it's really nice to know. Like I wasn't the only one at eight years old taking out other people's trash cans. Well, in your essay, you also say that uh, whatever the drawbacks may have been, um, having a family that uh, owned a, m a motel, particularly as you move from place to place, your family's uh, you know moved uh, in, in cycles of every few years, I guess. Um, as you became a new kid in a town, and it's pretty typical, I think, for these these kinds of sets up setups that the family lives in a dwelling that's essentially attached to the property, the motel property somehow. But apparently, this kind of gave you a certain cachet or mystique uh, among your schoolmates. <laughs> Talk about that. Yeah, it would, that was really funny when I moved to a town, um, which I have to say, like, this town didn't, I was one of two Indians in the town, um, and, or two Indian Americans whose family was Indian, um, and it, they, they were like, where, where did, like, what planet did you land up from? Like, this is, we, we've never even met anybody who's um, Indian, let alone now you're telling us you live in a motel, and it was, I can kind of distinctly remember the kids crowding around me, like wanting to hear more. And I was just like, wow, like this is just, this is my life. Um, but you know, it makes a lot of sense. Like these kids lived in a house and this is around the time that shows like um, the sweet life of Zach and Cody came out on Disney channel, which we were the prime, you know, prime demographic for. So all my friends were watching it and they just thought I lived this grand, glamorous life. And I watched it and I was like, mm, no, I don't get room service. I don't live in a room. I live in a an apartment attached to the lobby. Let's just be very clear. Like my life is not exotic. Um, and it was just a funny kind of reckoning to for both of us to understand the other's perspective. But yeah, it took some time for me to be like, you guys, like this is, it's not an exotic or fun life. Um, but I get it. Like as kids, you, you really latch onto the different person in your group. So, um, that's maybe kind of, kind of, uh, an upside a, a little bit, but the, you know, there are a lot of downsides too. Uh, you're in the South, uh, the South, not always the most racially tolerant place in America. Um, you're in the South also at a time where xenophobia may start running high, particularly right around the time uh, of 9-11. So, so what that, what's that like? If, you, if in fact there are almost no South Asian families in some of these towns that you move to, it, I would assume that it would open your family up to certain kinds of um, unpleasantness, it might be a way to put it. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, um, that's definitely very euphemistic. I mean, there were, you know, there were racial slurs and indefinite, re like real threats of our, for our safety during, um, immediately following 9-11. Like I can distinctly remember, um, a customer, a white 
American customer um, talking to my dad about, you know, and there was some disagreement about a room. I'm not sure what happened, but I mean, he, he was, he called him Osama bin Laden and it was a very loud voice. Like it was, it was an attack. And I remember like watching that from kind of from our apartment, which was, as I said, attached to the lobby. So I remember seeing what that looked like. And my dad told him to leave. And, you know, I think about all the situations like that, where it could have escalated so quickly, especially in Texas, where people love their guns. Um, And, you know, it's not, it's not hard to have a gun. Um, And we're just, I feel very fortunate that, you know, we, we, that didn't happen to us. Uh, but these stories are not, again, like my story is not an anomaly that these situations happen to us often as a community. Um, this is the one that I can think of. I, I also, I was fortunate and I, I think about this in a very different lens now, having grown up um, and, and being a person of color. Uh, I grew up in a city or in a very small town um, during this period of time that was primarily African-American and Hispanic Americans. And at the time, uh, I didn't understand like how that would impact my life, but I am so appreciative to have grown up in a community like that because we, I think those communities kind of understood what it felt like to be outsiders and to be the brunt and to feel the brunt of racism. So while they thought I was weird and different, I mean, as kids are want to feel uh, about, you know, new kids, they, they quickly embraced me as somebody of their own. Like we understood each other. And now I think about that. I have a, you know, I stayed in touch with, with at least one friend from this time period of my time. We've been friends for 20 years and we talk about that. I think about my experience. I w- it would have been very different had I lived um, in, a, in a town that was primarily white. Absolutely. I, I do think, though, that you're experiencing kind of two different subsets uh, of the American experience. Uh, you have the people in the town who have the opportunity to get to know you. You have an opportunity right. to present yourself as a real person, you know, and, and so that happens. But I mean, fundamental to the motel business is that you're frequently dealing with people who are there for 24 or 48 hours, are never going Nothing. to see you again and probably feel more comfortable airing out their racism at you than they would in the community where they live. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, and right now my parents live in a, um, in a town in East Texas, very much the Bible Belt. This is where we lived, um, where we moved to after, um, kind of that nine 11 period where and this town is, I mean, there's, it's primarily white. Um, so when we moved there, I was, um, starting high school and that was a very, interesting experience you know i had somebody tell me early on like very in the first maybe week or two weeks um she learned that i was not christian and she just told me um point blank she said oh my gosh you're going to hell because you don't believe in jesus and i was like wow i where did you know ironically i was like where what planet am i on now because i just moved from a town where i had finally um, felt like I, w- I belonged amongst other people of color. And I moved to this town as primarily uh, white American. And I just, somebody told me this. And then that plus the motel thing, it was like, it was so much because I moved around all the time. And you're, you're the new kid. So yeah, I mean, you're right. Like it's, it, my parents and, and I as, a, um, as an extension, like we, we, we interacted with so many people that just kind of came through. And you think about who's kind of just coming through. Um, these small East Texas or like Central Texas towns. Um, yeah, and it's it's a little scary. So, um, you know, I think that motels 
uh, for a long time, particularly in, in popular culture, are portrayed as places either that some horror thing is going to ha happen or places where somebody's hiding out from somebody <laughs> or places where people are going to illicitly make sexy time um, right. or or just a place where people don't want to be. Uh, it just happens right now that the country is very uh, interested in uh, the series Schitt's Creek, which has won all kinds of awards. Um, this is about some super rich people who lose all their money. They wind up down in the South uh, and the uh, four of them are staying in a fairly uh, cramped quarters of an adjoining motel, uh, adjoining motel rooms uh, in this place. We'll hear just a little bit of that right here. I'd like to check in, please. Oh my God, where did you come from? I said hello twice. Well, hello, hello then. There you go, room three. Also, how many beds are in the room? Two. Would it be possible to get a cot or a rollaway bed put in the room? Oh, you're expecting company? No. I use it to lay out my clothes. The chest of drawers should suffice, no? I like to see all my clothes at once. Might the other bed not do? Yes, except I haven't decided which bed to sleep in, so that's tricky. Really, the cot would be best. A cot it is, then. Thank you. Oh, and are the pillows feather or foam? Yes. Sorry, which one? I don't care. I'm sorry? I don't know. I'm not entirely versed on the contents of the motel's pillow collection. I was just asking. And I'm very much looking forward to the moment when that stops. Well. Enjoy your stay. So that's, of course, the very wealthy <laughs> Kathleen O'Hara, who is uh, not doing a very good job of checking in a demanding guest. But, you know, all these cliches um, yeah. for him. I assume there's, like most cliches, there's some scintilla of truth in a lot of them. But I don't know, as you think about the people who really were your family's customers in these motels that they owned, who who were they? It, it was, uh, well, that, that clip was really funny because it did jog a lot of memories for me. Um, it was, you know, it's a combination. Like, it really depends on the institution that you're running. And, and to your point, like, there are, you know, there are motels where it's, they rent by the hour. And mm -hmm it's that's their clientele and they embrace it. And that's what they, um, you know, that's their business and that's fine. Um, and then there's motels that, um, that don't operate like that. My parents uh, run a motel that for them, the, a lot of their primary clientele is um, construction workers, people who come through the town and uh, are there to, you know, to, to work on long-term projects that I know for years has been um, their main clientele. They were very good rapport with this, uh, with a couple of companies where, you know, these people always come to, um, to stay with uh, at my parents' hotel and they, 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 they know my parents, they know by their name, you know, they um, have reasonable expectations of what they can expect. Um, and then there's people who come through and they're not my, you know, they're, they really do like this clip is very funny because I can think of like a hundred instances where they, you know, people come through and they think that they're staying at like a Hilton and, and my, you know, and my parents, um, particularly like my mom, she has her, her manner of speech and, you know, it's just it's very point blank. It's very, um, it's just very honest and she doesn't know how to sugarcoat things, which I mean, that's, that's just the way she speaks. And in the South, you know, like they love to have everything really sugarcoated and people like to be treated really nice. 
obviously. Um, and they don't like when my mom tells them, like, no, we don't have these pillows. We don't have this. Like, can you please just go to your room and um, yeah. And like leave this office that's happened. And so, and sometimes, you know, we tell my mom like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta meet them in the middle. But sometimes, I mean, people just really, they pay like, you know, a certain amount of money and they expect, um, they expect accommodations that you would find elsewhere. So it is, it's, I, I firmly believe that the customer is not always right. Um, and that's, I, I think I can say that uh, confidently and fairly because I've seen a slew of business come through in the last like 25 years. And I know that not everybody deserves, um, deserves to be treated with the respect they they want when they are coming forward and saying, hey, you know, this is trash. This is trash. Like, I want this. I want that. Um, so it's it's a it's a business. Right. So you have to really meet people in the middle and and um, protect your brand. But, yeah, it's tough. I, I feel for my parents quite a bit because they they understand they get it. But it's you can only take so much sometimes. Um, and so that clip is pretty funny because they, yeah, those customers come through quite often. So, you know, one of the themes of the show, I think, is um, a generation, a millennial generation that is maybe a little bit more comfortable with or has had to learn to be a little bit more comfortable with um, a somewhat more nomadic lifestyle. Um, and and this is certainly the case for you. As you say in your essay, first of all, your parents were uh, taking over new motels in different places uh, from time to time. So you moved around a bit uh, as a kid. You married a man who had had a similar experience. Experience and this left you with, um, I, I think, what a higher degree of comfort with the idea that yeah, five years from now we could be in a completely different place and that shouldn't bother us. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, my husband, my my husband's family is not in the motel business. Um, he is Indian American as well. So it, but it is like when we met, we were like, wow, this is great because we both happened for different circumstances, moved around quite a bit as kids. Both of us have only lived in a one one place um, for six years, um, and we're in our thirties. So you know that for us, we are very comfortable with that idea and almost kind of expect it that we will, we will live in a place until it stops serving us for whatever reason. And then we'll, we'll move on. And then eventually maybe, you know, we'll settle down somewhere if we choose to have children. Um, and that's kind of how, you know, we're at right now. Like we met in New York city, um, and we were both there for about four or five years respectively. Um, now we're in San Francisco. We've been here for about the same amount of time. And, just with the the way uh, we both work in tech and now we're grounded at home and it's kind of like, well, do we really want to pay all this rent and live, you know? And so it's, it's very um, liberating for me to have that mindset that we don't, we are not grounded to a place and we can find community and we can find um, everything that we love somewhere else. Uh, and I, I always, I, I think that that's probably my biggest, um, that's been my biggest gift from this experience uh, growing up as a motel kid, because I, I adjust very well. It takes me, you know, about a year. I'm, I'm always a little homesick, but then I embrace where I live. And, and I think in today's age, like millennials, as you mentioned, are moving around so much. It can be tough when you leave your friends and your community behind, but, uh, we've uh, me and I know my husband as well like we've just been so fortunate that we can embrace our new homes and we find new friends find community which I think is so important um to really feel at home and um then we move on you know and it doesn't mean you close the chapter on that place you 
we have friends, like the internet is great because we, we can maintain friendships with people um, that we've known for 20 years. And yeah, it's great. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. And that's all I have to say about it. Well, actually, so Forum Meta is sharing with us how growing up in a family that owned motels and moved around a bit has shaped some of her attitudes. Forum, if you're really getting tired of paying your rent, you're going to want to listen to the segment that comes after this break. <laughs> We're going to talk about one thing that some millennials are doing is just driving their homes around, particularly if you're working remotely. It doesn't really matter whether you're in an RV park in Seattle or an RV park in Montana or an RV park somewhere else, as long as there's a good working internet. So we'll be talking about the, the lure of the RV in several different pursuits right after this. I've got a blue You know, I should have said this uh, in the first segment, but another reason that motels have experienced an uptick is that people didn't want to get on planes and still don't want to get on planes. So uh, if they have to go to a wedding that's, you know, a thousand or more miles away, they might drive there and they might spend less time at the destination because they're not flying there. They don't have as much time. They're going to stay in motels more. But another thing people have done uh, in reaction to not wanting to fly is to travel by RV. And that is coupled with something that I think also fit very well into what Forum is talking about. There are also some people who are thinking, you know, if I'm going to be working remotely all the time, it doesn't really matter where I am. Uh, I can be a lot of different places. So yes, there is uh, also uh, a renaissance happening in the world of RVs and comparable kinds uh, of vehicles. Here to talk about that uh, is writer Alex Tumblador, a novelist and freelance writer who focuses on diversity and inclusion in travel, arts, and culture. She's the author of Secrets of the Casa Rosada. Her new novel, Half Outlaw, will be published in 2022. Uh, and she wrote a piece uh, on this subject for Outside Magazine. Uh, welcome to our show, Alex. Thank you for having me. So, you know, another thing that I didn't mention, but is clear to me from your piece, there's a there's yet another thing going on, I think, which is that people now have access to travel websites and to Instagram accounts where other people are writing about completely different approaches to travel. Um, and, and one of those approaches is, yeah, what if you drove your hotel room uh, around all the time? What if you kind of took it with you? What advantages would you get? It seems like that's been another way that people are who might not have explored this possibility are learning about how it could work. Yes, I agree with you. Um, and what's exciting about that is that we're seeing a lot more diverse RV lifers, as they call themselves, or van lifers, um, who are showcasing their travels on Instagram or social media. Their family and friends are seeing it. Oh, I can go out and do this as well. Um, I can get a camper, either buy one or rent one, and it's safe, it's exciting, and it's um, a new adventure that I can take during the pandemic when I don't feel comfortable getting on planes. 
Yeah, it was uh, actually your article sent me to a, a blog called Awkward Traveler, where there's sort of a, a lot about that. You know, what if you're maybe not in demographics that are naturally or comfortably served by the hospitality industry? You know, what, what other kinds of stuff can you do? And this is one of the things I think that pops up here. So one of the companies that you looked at was called Cabana. And this is, uh, well, tell us a little bit, little bit about the, the company. Yeah, so Cabana is based out of Seattle. They're going to be, um, you know, going into new markets in the next year. But basically what they are are camper vans that are decked out to the T. Um, you can expect to get, you know, memory foam mattresses, a kitchen, a shower, um, storage, something to cook on. I mean, it's like a hotel room on wheels is kind of how I framed it. Um, you have Wi-Fi and flat screen TVs. And a lot of people before the pandemic would go to Seattle, rent one of these camper vans and go check out, you know, the Northwest area, which is beautiful. But because of the pandemic, Cabana isn't starting to notice that locals are wanting to take the vans around the area. Um, and so I think they're getting excited to come into different cities like San, Fr San Diego, San Francisco and Denver in the next year or so, um, so that they can also help those people who live in those areas, you know, go on socially distanced vacations without sacrificing sacrificing comfort in these camper vans. Yeah, and if you are concerned uh, about um, infection control, um, vans like this are they're clean using uh, UVC light. Uh, then they kind of sit fallow for six to eight hours. And then after that, and I think this would be comforting for people with these kinds of anxieties, uh, well-placed anxieties, I might add, nobody's really going to enter the, the, the van or touch the van or touch your stuff or cough on your blanket, except for you, right? The, the, one of the nice things about this is once you've got it, it's it's yours. Absolutely. And, you know, I think camper vans and RV rentals give you um, the freedom to also bring your own cleaning supplies. I mean, I think what Cabana is doing is great and as well as many of the other rental sites. Um, but you just have a lot more control whenever you're in a camper van in an RV rental um, or your own. You can, you know, make sure you're sanitized before you get in. Make sure you're sanitized before you get out. Um, sanitize it down every morning and night. So it's all for you to have control with. Yeah, I mean, I, you describe one person talking about like trying to stay in a traditional hotel room, and like the staff wasn't wearing wearing masks, the other guests weren't wearing masks. There's a lot of time and anxiety spent just wondering, well, what's going on here? What level of caution is everybody around me practicing? And and so you get the RV, and really, once again, uh, you make the rules, you follow the rules. You don't have to worry so much about other people. So there are some other options here, and one of them, which I, you know, now alluded to twice, but I really think it's kind of amazing, is, you know, well, our previous guest forum, uh, she and her husband could conceivably, they're tech workers, uh, they're wondering what they're paying all that rent for in San Francisco. <laughs> um, one of the things that they could do is essentially use something like this, use a vehicle like this as housing, uh, and do their tech work remotely from wherever they are. What did you learn? about that. Yes. Yeah, so I think a lot more camper van and RV companies are actually outfitting RVs and camper vans now to be remote friendly, um, to work for people who are millennials, people who are kids, who have kids, um, who need to do remote learning. Um, most of the RV sites, you are going to have free Wi-Fi. And if you don't, there's amazing opportunities to get hotspots that can, you know, get you service anywhere in the United States or the world. Um, 
But I'm also finding that RV sites are kind of upping their features and amenities as well. So this is where you would go and hook up. Um, they A lot of them have things like gyms and spas or pools or putting greens. Um, I also got to know Kibo, which is a new RV rental, or sorry, it's a new subscription-based RV site. And basically what people would do is they pay a fee to become a member and they pay a monthly fee to have access to these clubhouses around the U.S. They're going to start in the West Coast, but eventually expand. And you can park your RV there. You can get to know a community. Um, I heard Forum mention how community is very important. Um, and that's the case with these RV sites that Kibo is going to be creating. Um, you can get to know your community and then you can go off and then come back whenever you want. And um, that's that's pretty exciting and pretty cool to see what RV startups are doing to try to maintain community, um, but also give people opportunity to own their own camper vans, um, deck them out however they would like, or rent them from Kibo if they need it. So the uh, still there are some people listening thinking, well, I don't think I, I could do that based on at least my mental picture uh, of an RV or any kind of related vehicle. So you introduce us to uh, My Bus Hotel, which is sort of the RVs of the gods. Uh, these are uh, former school buses converted into, you know, pretty complete, comprehensive. I mean, they got roof terraces. They might have solar panels and water heaters and stuff. These these truly are the RVs of the gods, are they not? Absolutely. Um, My Bus Hotels is everything you could want in a high tech, high design um, space that can you know move around the whole country and go to RV sites and see beautiful uh, landscapes around the world. Um, so yeah, my bus hotels is creating these design forward RVs with like custom cabinets and living rooms, everything you want, they can do. Um, but on top of that, I'm also seeing people who have camper vans and RVs um, who are buying them, they're stripping them down and they're making them to their own specific standards. If they want a really big bed, they're putting a really big bed. If they want a a closet or a waterfall shower head, they are figuring out how to do it. And that's amazing. You're able to have control in your own space, design it how you would like, um, and make it work for you in this forever traveling kind of uh, mindset. So one of the things that your article looked at that I, I thought was very interesting was the way that, yeah, you, you alluded to this at the beginning. I mean, when, there's also sort of a mental picture of who's driving an RV, and it's a couple of white retirees, a heterosexual uh, white couple. <laughs> retirees are driving the RV all over the place. Now, that's not everybody. And there's lots of people who use RVs for camping or take their kids uh, camping, camping on weekends or, or whatever. But it does seem as though there's an effort being made here to develop not just companies and products, but kind of a lifestyle where maybe, yeah, a single woman of color could travel a little bit more comfortably uh, in in a vehicle like this, maybe have to deal with fewer hassles as long as she develops kind of a, a sense of, of what the best practices and the smartest practices are. That for people of color, people on a budget, single women, all kinds of people like that, this can really work. Absolutely. Yeah. When I was growing up, we would go to campsites and RV sites and it definitely was always old retirees, it seemed like, who were living in their RVs at the at these sites year round. And while that's great, um, I'm glad to see that camper vans and RVs 
um, that RV life is becoming accessible to people of different backgrounds, of different budgets. I got to interview Natasha Van Horn, who just became a full-time van lifer this year. Um, she travels around with her five-year-old daughter, and she's able to save a lot of money to send her daughter to college one day, to buy a house one day that she wants, but also get to live this travel life that she wants to have right now while she's in her 20s and 30s. Um, you know, I'm excited to see that RV sites and the outdoors is becoming more inclusive of people, just like in travel and in many other sectors of the world, it hasn't always been inclusive, but there's been groups like Outdoor Af Afro, Latino Outdoors and Native Women's Wilderness that really showcase to women and LGBT people and people with kids who are maybe single moms or single dads that you can go out and out into the outdoors. It's going to be safe for you. Um, you can find spaces that are safe and welcoming and communal. And that's really exciting. Um, one of my favorite things is that Kibo is in their launching of their RV site and community clubhouses. They are talking to people of different backgrounds, asking them, what do you need to be safe? What do you need to feel comfort and welcome and inclusive. Um, they're also making sure to include people on their board who have these experiences. So I'm really glad to see the RV and outdoor life and outdoor industry kind of be more welcoming and inclusive. This, uh, it's a terrific article. We, we will link to it from our show page at wnpr.org slash Colin, but it's the new camper companies redefining road travel in outside magazine. Uh, our guest, uh, Alex Tumblador is the writer, uh, terrific piece. And thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Okay. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to hear about Liza and Arunin's national lampoon vacation. Now I'm sure it went very well. I mean, what could go wrong? Two grownups Four little kids in an RV driving across this great land of ours. Okay, we're back with our final segment. But first, I've got to thank Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio making everything happen the way we want it to happen and making it possible for us to work remotely. So thanks to you, Kat. Uh, and thanks to senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, Betsy Kaplan, who is the producer also of this particular episode. Uh, and so thanks to her as well. Uh, tomorrow is the nose. I think I have that right. I'm actually somewhat confused about what day it is, but I leave, believe tomorrow is the nose. And actually, uh, apropos of our earlier clip, we've uh, we are all watching Schitt's Creek, the acclaimed uh, comedy series uh, featuring two veterans of SCTV. I say we're all watching it. In fact, I think the two panelists have watched all of it already, and I'm trying frantically to catch up. But we'll be talking about that and other things as well. All right, so uh, Arunin and Liza Butler Aralampalam uh, are a married couple. Arunin is the deputy commissioner of at the Connecticut Department of Consumer Protection. Liza is co-lead pastor of Riverfront Family Church. Um, I know them fairly well. I'm very close friends with Liza's father and Arunin's father-in-law. And I think he and I were having kind of a FaceTime, a glass of wine earlier in the pandemic. And he suddenly says to me, well, Arunin and Liza are getting an RV and they're driving it cross country. 
And I said, I think I'm going to have to refill the glass of wine just to even think about what that would possibly be like. They have four wonderful children, the most delightful children you'd ever want to meet. But they are four small children. So, um, Arun, I'll have you start. This is partly because your your family's uh, out on the West Coast and it didn't really seem very practical or appealing to get on an airplane either. Yeah, I mean, I you you've met my parents. They live in California, and we were just worried about you know we felt sadness about the idea of going you know who knows maybe two years with we, our kids are seven six and twin five year olds right now um, two years without seeing them, and so we we couldn't put them on an airplane. They are are basically COVID magnets. Um, they have a lot of trouble social distancing, um, and we didn't want to stay in a bunch of hotels on the way. And so, I, actually, Liza had the idea first. She kind of outlandishly said, "What, well, what if we, what if we get an RV and, and drive there?" Um, and so she she looked it up and she found a website in which we could rent an RV, and and we booked it and and went. I think I had also gone a little crazy after working from home and being stuck in my home for. <laughs> three months and anything seemed better than that, I probably wouldn't have done it otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, Liza, I just have to assume, you know, I, I guess RVs come in all sizes. Can you get an RV big enough so it doesn't feel small with two grown-ups and four fairly young kids? It definitely felt small, and we were on a budget, too, so we didn't get one of the super fancy ones yeah. that your previous guest was talking about. And even if we did, our kids would have destroyed it, so it probably wouldn't have been a good idea. But we had um, uh, we had enough beds for everybody, so there was a bed in the back, a bed above where you drive, and then both the couch and the table turned into a bed. So we were able to sleep everybody, but, um, you know, with – four kids on the road for a week, I think any any space that you can drive is going to feel very cramped. So I, I'd be interested in knowing some of the upsides to this too, Arun. And I do think it's true that when you travel with children and you're using airplanes and hotels and stuff like that, there's actually a lot of time to spend on logistics, you know, getting them all onto the plane, you know, making sure you didn't lose one in the airport, getting everybody <laughs> settled into the hotel, all this kind of stuff. And, and, and obviously you're not watching scenery go by when you get up on the, uh, in, in the sky in the airplane, I would assume that there is at least the opportunity to watch the, the country go by and see some really interesting places. What, what were one or two, uh, experiences that, that sort of gave you that? Yeah. I mean, the, the trip there, it's, it's difficult to, when the screen, when the kids have, our, our kids don't get a lot of screen time. And so when they have the option in the RV of, of either looking at an iPad or looking at a, at a cow field, they usually look at the iPad. Um, <laughs> and I, I love state capitals. We, drove by about seven of them and I kept trying to get the kids to look at, at the state capitals and they got pretty tired of them by the end. But we also got to, I mean, we got to see parts of the country and, and we did stop a little bit um, where at places we can get outdoors and they're just gorgeous. I mean, we stopped by um, some of the state parks in Utah and we saw the Grand Canyon and uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico and, and just parts of the, I think, I think it's really easy to forget how much beauty there is across our country. Um, and I think that really, impacted the kids. I think they really enjoyed each of those stops we made. Yeah, I, th it really is true, too, just when you experience a different terrain. Um, you know, my son and he and I have explored a lot uh, around uh, Arizona, too. And uh, back in, in his younger days, we as a family uh, did that the drive down from Sedona up to the Grand Canyon. You just see a kind of terrain there, a high desert that you don't see in, in too many other places. And I think kids do react pretty well to that. Um, Liza, 
Um, let's say that one of your friends uh, hears this interview and says, you know, I'm thinking maybe we'll do that next year. Uh, what kind of advice? What, what did you learn about like, how to do this uh, right? What kinds of tips would you give your friend? So I think having a destination was really helpful, like being on the road for a week and then being at Arunan's parents' house for a spell was great because we were able to take a real shower, get out of the RV, spend time there, and then we were ready to do it again. So I probably wouldn't recommend being on the road with four small kids for an entire month. I think you would get tired. Um, Lots of snacks. (laughs) Snacks are excellent. Uh, In our family's case, motion sickness medication. You don't want any pukers. Um, And lots of screens and tablets, like Arunan said. That was kind of our lifesaver. (laughs) And some good mediation skills because we had nonstop fighting for a week with four kids within two years stuck together in an RV. <laughs> Kids are kind of like molecules. The closer the space is, the, the more they're going to bump into each other. And so it was, it was like a constant, there's constantly somebody fighting with somebody. <laughs> so Arunan, I asked, uh, I mean, Liza, I asked Arunan uh, about his favorite stops and sites. Did you have some that you were really glad to see in that way, in, in that sort of on the ground experience? I mean, I think the entire West Coast, um, I mean, I guess not West West, but the whole West area of the country, I could have probably skipped the entire middle of the country, but um, Denver was amazing. Santa Fe was amazing. The Utah parks, probably my favorite was Arches National Park in Utah. That was just gorgeous, like nothing I'd ever seen before being a East Coaster. Um, So kind of that leg of, of the trip. And we took two different routes going to LA and coming home. So we were able to see different parts of the West each way. And those were just beautiful. Well, one thing both of you have to look forward is doing a similar experience uh, with your kids when they're grumpy teenagers, which <laughs> I, which I can tell you, uh, at least from travel experiences, uh, is, is like a whole other thing. But I think the thing that's that will also shock you about all this uh, is that uh, when your kids get older, no matter how much fighting they did or complaining or insisting on looking at their tablets instead of looking uh, at the beautiful wheat fields going by, they will they'll talk about this incredibly nostalgically as this is sort of a great thing that that they remember and they won't remember the fighting. But I'm I'm wondering, Arunin, how do they think about it now? Did they think, hey, this was a really great trip. We're so glad we did this uh, very long drive across country and back. Yeah, they, they actually really enjoyed the trip. Diana, who's our youngest, he's five at the end of the trip. Actually, I think he was still four by the time the trip ended. He, he decided that he wanted to, as his, as his career in life, be a mountain climber. <laughs> I think he just called it a climber. He, he either wanted to be a, a business person or a climber is what he would say. Um, but uh, they, they really enjoyed the trip. And, and I think there's something just breathtaking, regardless of your age, when you actually stand at the Grand Canyon when you, you know, sleep, stay at night in arches and when, you know, parts of the country are just, it's, it's, uh, I think breathtaking at any age. And so it's, it's interesting, even, even when it has to compete with PJ mask on a tablet. And they were able to make a lot of observations about the country. I think that, um, you know, they noticed different graffiti on capitals and black lives matter protests. They noticed who was wearing masks in which state and who wasn't. They noticed, when they'd see Trump flags or don't tread on me flags at different parks that we were at, like they are young, but they, they also know what's going on in our country. And I think being able to leave the Connecticut bubble um, was good for them. They they learned a lot. It was just such an interesting time to see the country between the election and, and COVID there. It's so interesting to see, uh, get a little glimpse, even if it's kind of out the window or, or the people, other people who are at RV parks with you. It's, it's interesting to get a glimpse of, 
of where different parts of the country are right now. Well, I'll offer a very public radio-ish observation, which is that, you know, I mean, our country, our, the kind of mythos of our country is sort of founded on this idea of getting on the road, taking to the road. You know, we, we grow up reading Kerouac's On the Road and listening to James Taylor singing about, you know, crossing the country or Woody Guthrie songs and things like that. But at a certain point, a lot of us stopped doing that or just never started doing that. I've never driven across the country. I'm 65 years old. I've never done what your little kids have done. Um, and, and I think that's, it's funny. I mean, all of that fell away when air travel got cheaper and faster and you could kind of go anywhere. So Liza, it does feel like, you know, you're giving them this sort of fundamentally American experience, which has been part of our folklore and our symbology for, for, you know, almost as long as the country's been around, the, the expansion of the country was, was kind of built on that. So I, I would guess that, that that'll sort of give them something to think about in the years ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we drove down Route 66, which was the original cross-country yeah. highway, I think, right? Yeah. I, it's just so inconvenient to, to do that now, you know, <laughs> uh, or pre-COVID it was. And, and you know, now when you can work from home uh, and you have a mobile hotspot, you can literally work anywhere. And so we were really able to pretty effectively build our, our work around mm-hmm. being able to take this trip. Um, and, and I think it did. It, it really kind of, even for us, I, you know, you, you, you get in a grind uh, wherever you are, um, certainly before COVID, kind of going to work and back, and then after COVID, just sitting in our house and doing the same thing. And so it, it, it was really, it really helped break out of that, um, that grind, I think. I would, as long as I had like 90 benzodiazepam uh, tablets, I would definitely be willing to consider. <laughs> so we have to stop here. That's Arunan and Liza Rampalam. They are my friends and delightful people and very brave people. They drove cross country with their four little kids. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today. And thanks to all of you who listen as well. Uh, and we'll be back indeed tomorrow with the nose. We're the best of friends insisting that the world keep turning our way. road again Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends